Hello, welcome to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Here you will find cutting-edge information provided by the best experts in the world so you can learn how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Bruno de Gama is the Brazilian Health Nut in a mission to solve the problems you have when trying to lose weight forever. He is a nutritional therapy practitioner, a certified personal trainer, and a holistic lifestyle coach by the Czech Institute. Don't forget to say hello and sign up to our free newsletter at www.brazilianhealthnet.com. Let's go! All right, thank you so much for being here with me today, Ben. I super appreciate your time. Would you tell a little bit about your background first, your story, and how did you become one of the top health influencers in the world, man? Yeah, well, I, uh, I guess I first got interested in fitness and sports and athletics and even nutrition to a certain extent when I was in high school and discovered the sport of tennis and I really wanted to be a very good tennis player. And I, before that I'd played soccer and basketball and baseball and all these other sports, but tennis really seemed to be something that I wanted to get really good at. So I, you know, I bought little 10 pound dumbbells and I started to run the hills behind my house and I started to, you know, pay attention to maybe having a salad every day and um, you know, it eventually got to the point where I got good enough to play in college and just like any, uh, or at least most of the athletes, uh, playing, uh, any sport in college, I decided I was going to be an exercise science major. So for four mm -hmm. years I studied exercise science and nutrition, uh, mm -hmm. fell in love with it, got a master's degree in biochemistry and, uh, biomechanics, the movement of the human body and, uh, after a, a brief stint kind of looking into uh, going into medical school, I decided to uh, stay with fitness and I opened up a lot of personal training studios and gyms uh, in Washington State and Idaho here in the U.S. and you know, spent nearly seven years um, really digging into the science of exercise at a very high level. So for example, my personal training facility, we had we had a metabolic uh, analysis equipment for analyzing resting metabolic rate and exercise metabolic rate. We had uh, echocardiograms or, or uh, electrocardiograms for measuring a heart function during exercise, high-speed video cameras for analyzing run gait and uh, <laughs> you know, bicycle fitting. We did a lot of yeah. blood work. Uh, in terms of looking not just at what's going on outside the body, but what's going on inside the body. Um, most of that kind of culminated uh, in 2008 with me being voted as America's top personal trainer, just based on a lot of these kind of outside-the-box things I was mm -hmm. doing to get results uh, for people from everything from fat loss to physical performance to even longevity and anti-aging. And then uh, after that, I wound up becoming more of like an author and a speaker and eventually kind of stopped doing a lot of like the one-on-one the -on -one personal training and instead kind of ventured more into doing what I do now, which is, you know, I do a lot of consulting with people online 
uh, people all over the world, you know, via Skype and via phone. I do a lot of, uh, you know, podcasting and I write articles at bengreenfieldfitness.com. And, you know, I, I, uh, I write books and you know, that's generally, yeah. Yeah, that's generally what I do now. But really, I've, I've shifted a lot of my focus to helping people not just get good bodies or, you know, look good naked or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. but also achieve at the same time really good performance, not just of the body, but also good performance of the brain, yes, of, the, your mind. of the gut, of, you know, right. sexual health. And then also... Um, anti-aging and longevity, right? Who wants to look good and feel good if you are going to be dead in a few years, you know? So I've, I've really tried to uh, begin to unlock a lot more of the, 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 the doors that lead to the combination of health, performance, and longevity. And that's kind of what I do now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Awesome. That's a nice journey. I play tennis and soccer as well, so we should play some time. Yeah. <laughs> I used to play a lot of tennis and now I'm more on soccer because, you know, it's, um, I, I'm from Brazil. I still have yeah. this feeling, you know, here it's just soccer, soccer, soccer. Nobody yeah. plays tennis. So Yeah, well, yeah. I, I do want to come to Brazil someday. It's, it's definitely yeah. a country I've heard a lot of good things about and I love South America and my kids take Spanish every day at school and so I need an excuse to to have them mm-hmm. go and, and practice there. Yeah, They're, even though, even you, though know, you guys are speak Portuguese. Portuguese, right? Yeah, <laughs> I remember because a lot of my teammates in in uh, in college they they spoke Portuguese because they were Brazilian tennis players. So that's you know one of the one of the things I I spent or I heard a lot for four years. Vamos, 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 vamos. <laughs> yeah, every, exactly. Every time you want a point, it's just vamos, vamos, vamos. <laughs> yeah, that's the come on for people who don't know. So, Ben, you start your book, Beyond Training, with a phrase that goes more or less like this. Athletes are unhealthy, you know, and so a lot of people, when they try to lose weight, they go and they look into exercise and especially, oh, I should exercise like an athlete because they're pretty healthy and that's a good way to lose weight. And actually, right before here this interview, I was just talking to my brother and I was like, where are you going? And he's like, oh, I'm going to the gym. And I was like, didn't you just go in the morning? And he's like, yeah, I'm going again. You know, I wanted to do more, more, more is better. So I was like, oh, we got to talk later. I have to talk to Ben Greenfield here. He's going to give you some advice on that. So what's your take on this? You know, the exercising a lot. I know we could just talk the whole show, but can you just give like a summary in terms of philosophy around exercise, please? Well, Here's the deal. Exercise is is misperceived as something that we need in order to stay fit or in order to be healthy. Now, for example, while I am talking to you right now, I'm walking on my treadmill. And for many of my phone calls and consults and some of my writing today, etc., I'll walk on my treadmill. And so by the end of the day, I will maybe have have stood or walked or lunged or kneeled or been in any other variety of positions that I'll adopt during the day for six to eight hours. That's just mm-hmm. low-level physical activity. You know, I'll also go get the mail and I'll sprint back up the driveway after I get the mail. And, you know, I started off my morning today with 50 push-ups and 50 squats. And, uh, you know, I'll follow my rule of, you know, whenever I go and I use the bathroom, I'll do 10 squats. And so, you know, by the time I get to the end of the day, I don't have to exercise, right? I've been moving all day long. And so that's the first thing to realize is that if you hack your environment so that you indeed are moving all day long, fitness becomes an option. Some of the fittest people I know don't step into a gym. My father-in-law, who is a, a sheep rancher, 
right? He he works yeah. outside all day with his hands and his body. He doesn't need to go to the gym. My brother works as a farmer and he's out in the wheat field all day or else he's cutting down trees when he's logging in the summer and, and he doesn't go to the gym either. My wife, uh, she spends much of her day gardening and farming and taking care of our goats and chickens and working in the house and she does other things like she she plays tennis, for example, but she also doesn't do much formal exercise at all. And all these people I'm talking about, they're fit. And, mm-hmm. you know, granted, if you want to do an Ironman triathlon or you want to run a marathon or you want to compete in the CrossFit games, you'll still need to get to the end of an active day like that or start the beginning of an active day like that with some type of formal exercise routine. You know, but for me, Personally, that formal exercise routine for me, racing professionally in obstacle course racing, um, yeah. that's 30 to 60 minutes of exercise that I'll do at the end of the day after a day of just with low level physical activity. And it's always shocking to see how little you can get away with when it comes to really beating up your body in the gym or on the court or you know wherever else you happen to work out if you have low level physical activity all day long and when you look at right. even even like some of the more fit cross country skiers or marathoners or triathletes on the face of the planet many of them use this this training approach that i talk about in my book called the polarized training approach meaning they use they they exercise with about 80% of their time at a very low level conversational aerobic intensity so very, pretty much just moving around very a lot. very similar to what a non-professional athlete might experience when just figuring out ways in their lives that they can move around a lot and then about 20% of their training is extremely high high intensity but for very short periods of time you know really hard interval training and you know we can simulate that to a certain extent in our lives if we spend much of our lives you know, fooling our our bodies into thinking that they're hunting and gathering and farming and gardening, even if we are just, you know, standing instead of sitting at a computer or using a, you know, a treadmill or stopping every hour to do some jumping jacks. And then at the beginning or the end of the day, we put the icing on the cake with a very high intensity cardio session or a very high intensity weight training session. And when you do that, you don't have to spend, you know, as for example, I used to go to the gym for two to four hours a day. When I was bodybuilding, I used to work out for no less than 90 minutes a day uh, when I was first doing Ironman triathlon before I discovered, you know, these type of things that I'm talking about now. And yeah, it can yeah. be it can be tough on the body. It can create a lot of inflammation because if you think about it, what you're doing is you're shoving a huge amount of stress into a relatively short period of time rather than spreading that stress at a lower intensity throughout the day. And and when you shove all that stress into a short period of time, you create oxidation, inflammation, connective tissue damage, very large releases of norepinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol, and many uh, biochemical responses that can accelerate aging or can accelerate stress or can disrupt sleep or can even cause things like heart scarring you know the, uh, there's there's this concept called the athlete's heart that occurs in many cases in athletes who spend a lot of time with both voluminous and also intense exercise and uh, that that combination of volume and intensity appears to actually have 
ironically, uh, some negative cardiovascular implications when it comes to the, the health of your heart. So those are some of the things to think about when it comes to you know, how often you spend time at the gym exercising versus how often you, you spend time just kind of like engaged in low-level physical activity with less frequent visits to, say, the, the gym. Yeah, that's awesome. I, it's pretty similar to my routine and to the one that I promote. I move around a lot. So like you just said, every time I have the opportunity, I'm moving, I'm doing something with my body. And then I probably lift every, I don't know, like twice a week, once, once sometimes. And do, then I do a sprinting every seven to 10 days. That's pretty much it right now for the routine that I have. And I, you know, I, I feel really good. And I think it's enough. So let's talk about something that I haven't to talk to anyone, which is circadian rhythm. And I think that's a very, very important topic for people who want to lose weight and not many people are talking about. Can you please define what is this for people who don't know? Well, your circadian rhythm is simply the, the 24-hour clock that your body responds to. And, and circadian rhythm and, the, and that clock, it's it's adjusted or responds to everything from when you eat and how much you eat when you do eat, uh, when you exercise and how often, how much you exercise, when you see light or even when your skin gets exposed to light, when you see dark and when your skin is exposed to dark, um, when you, uh, when you go to the bathroom and when you, when you suppress the urge to go to the bathroom and don't go, all these things affect your circadian rhythm, your, your body's biological clock. And so mm -hmm. the idea here is that if you can normalize your circadian rhythm, have a body clock rhythm that is the way that the human body has for thousands of years been uh, exposed to and adjusted to respond optimally to, then a lot of hormones that are tied to the circadian rhythm become normalized. For example, the hormone leptin, which can allow fat to be released from your storage adipose tissue to be burnt as energy. That hormone, your body will be more responsive to if your circadian rhythm is normal. The same could be said for ghrelin, a hormone that makes you hungry. That tends right. to decrease when circadian rhythm is optimized. Um, there's another hormone. Cortisol and melatonin also, right? Mm -hmm. Those are two very important ones. Sure. Cortisol tends to be a lower typically when circadian rhythm is normalized, although there are certain times of the day when cortisol will, will accelerate, such as the morning, right. and that's normal, and that's when you would want it to accelerate versus, say, uh, the evening. Uh, there is, there is, uh, you know, the other hormone I was talking about, leptin, that can also be responsible not just for fatty acid release, but also for for appetite control. Insulin, a hormone which is responsible for shoving nutrients into, among other places, fat tissue. Insulin is released in lower amounts, and your body is more responsive to those lower amounts of insulin when your circadian rhythm is normalized. And so if you are living your life, say, um, eating breakfast at different times whenever you do eat breakfast, like sometimes at 8, sometimes at 11, sometimes at 9, and you are exposing your body to large amounts of light in the evening, uh, such as cell phones, but not very much light in the morning, such as, say, mm -hmm. sunshine. Sun. And you don't have 
any level of physical activity during the day or the time that you actually do engage in like that that shorter high intensity exercise we talked about that's sporadic right like sometimes it's afternoon and sometimes it's noon time etc all of those things can actually add up to dysregulate your circadian rhythm and so it's very interesting you know there's a there's a book called the power of habit and it has nothing to do with the circadian rhythm it just goes into how <laughs> how healthy yeah, habits yeah. are for the human body but it turns out that a lot of times these same habits that help us out with productivity and uh, personal health, they can also help us out quite a bit with circadian rhythm. It's why when I get up in the morning, the first thing that I do is I will go through my habit of you know gratitude journaling and slowly getting out of bed and stretching and doing some foam rolling, and then I move on and I you know I I I train my body to have a bowel movement in the morning when when that is the time of day when the circadian rhythm dictates you should be doing that, and then I mm-hmm. expose my body to sunlight or if there's no sunlight, some other form of light like blue light. You know they make in ear phototherapy or a special eyeglasses that will emit blue light. And so I get my body exposed to that early in the day. And then I move on and I have breakfast typically around the same time every morning. And I have lunch, you know, around 1.30 and I have a nap approximately five to seven hours after I wake. I nap for mm-hmm. 20 to 30 minutes. And then in the evening, I, I I keep the lights off in certain rooms where there are special light bulbs that have lots of blue light in them. And I instead only use the light bulbs that produce red light. And at the same time, I'll even wear glasses that block blue light, which is very much like sunlight, which I shouldn't yeah. be seeing at night from coming from my computer and my phone. And then I'll, I'll go to bed at approximately the same time every night. And if necessary, I'll even use things like melatonin or magnesium or cannabidiol or things that will help to shove Mm -hmm. my body into that sleep state more readily. And I do all of this so that my body's biological clock, so that that 24-hour circadian rhythm that you've referred to is is optimized. And when it does... the, The pros outweigh the cons, but there are cons. For example, if I want to go to a party on Friday night... Well, I've trained my body to kind of get tired at 10, and I've also trained it to wake readily at 6 a.m., which means if I stay at that party, you know, dancing or or partying or drinking or whatever until 2 a.m., mm-hmm. my body's still going to wake up at 6 a.m., and then I have oh. to kind of, you know, I have to readjust that circadian clock. Or if I travel, you know, if you, if you travel, you do need to pay attention to that circadian clock. So, for example, if I have been, I live in Washington State, and if I've been traveling uh, and I've been spending lots of time back east in, say, New York City, right. that means that when I'm in Washington State and I wake up uh, and uh, it's, it's 7 a.m. in New York City where I've been waking up for a few days because that's where I was traveling to, that means it's only 4 a.m. in Washington State because it's three hours earlier. And so I have to readjust my circadian rhythm. So what do I do? Well, if I have to get out of bed, which is many cases that, you know, rather than just simply laying there for three hours doing nothing because the body is wide awake, I'll get out of bed. But what I'll do is I'll put on blue light blocking glasses and I'll keep myself as much in the dark as possible until seven. And if I'm working on my computer, I'll dim my computer. And then once seven rolls around, I'll just step outside and get 
bursts of sunlight that send my body the message that, hey, right now is the morning. And even just doing yeah. it for one or two days, all of a sudden, helps to send my body the message that, hey, you know, here's the new biological clock that you're on. And of course, you can do that in reverse. You know, the same could be said for eating, right? Even though I'd normally eat two hours after I get up, if I get up at 4 a.m. because my body is still on the New York City clock, I won't eat at 6 a.m., right? I'll restrict mm-hmm. my body's feeding until like 9 a.m. So it gets used again to that normal circadian rhythm. So you always want to think about light, You want to think about the timing of food. You want to think about the timing of exercise. You want to think about the timing of your bowel movement. And once you start to put all those things together that circadian rhythm is tied to, you can really normalize your circadian rhythm, even if you do travel a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I use the the, the glasses here in Brazil, and people think I'm crazy. Like, what the fuck is that? Oh, (laughs) really? (laughs) Yeah, they they don't know what it is, you know. Then I have to explain the reason. Hey guys, what's up? Bruna Gama here, Brazilian Health Nut. And let's take a little break from the show because I would like to offer you something. If you go to my website, www.brazilianhealthnut.com and click on the page, Burn Fat Forever, you can go ahead and claim your free consultation with me right now, okay? Or you can just send me an email at brazilianhealthnut at gmail.com. So you can start to lose weight and feel healthier right now, okay? So go ahead and claim your free consultation with me and remember that spots are limited, okay? Now let's get back to the show. So let's move on here and I would love to talk about this, another topic that not, nobody's talking when in the weight loss, right? About weight loss, which is breathing. And let me just share two small stories here. First one, when I was doing my holistic lifestyle coaching with Pocek, and I had a big, like a good background in terms of nutrition when I was doing the course. So there was not many things new for me on that part, but there was a lot of emphasis on the breathing part. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I, I never really pay attention to. And another one, when I was in New York City, actually, uh, I was in a library, in a public library, and I was getting, that's like probably four, five years ago. And I, I got a book, well, the book was Why We Get Fat by Gary Tobbs, right? Mm-hmm. And I was checking out the book, and the, the lady looked at me, looked at the book, and like, you know why people get fat? And she was like, and I said, why? And, he, and she's like, because people don't breathe. And I was like, okay, cool, I never heard that before. So that stuck in my mind. So and you, in, in your book, The Beyond Training, uh, that you just mentioned before, you have a, like a good part about this, the importance of breathing. So how do we know if you are doing wrong? And what can we do to get better with the breathing, our, our skills to, to breathe, right? Because it's pretty natural. Yeah, I mean, we, we could do a whole podcast on breathing probably, but mm-hmm. here's, here's the basics. Your chest has baroreceptors in it, pressure receptors that, if activated, cause you to release cortisol. And what this means is that shallow chest breathing, which many people engage in during the day, it causes them to be in a stressed out state. And furthermore, when you don't engage in deep diaphragmatic breathing from your belly, you limit the amount of oxygen and glucose and nutrients and other things that can get delivered to tissue because you you limit blood flow and you limit oxygen availability. Now, the other thing that's important to realize in addition to deep diaphragmatic breathing is the concept that when you breathe nasally, 
through your nose, you have turbines in your nose that help to clean the air, help to humidify the air, help to oxygenate the air. And so in an ideal scenario, nasal, deep nasal, diaphragmatic breathing is one of the best things that you can train your body to subconsciously do throughout the day. How do you do that? Well, I, I start off each of my days with five minutes, very deep, focused breathing as I lay in bed. It's a perfect time to do it. And that sets the standard for the rest of the day. Now, I go above and beyond. When I mentioned that I'll do things like foam rolling and yoga, when I first get up in the morning, I will continue to breathe like that during those activities so that that type of breathing is something I continue to do more unconsciously or subconsciously throughout the rest of the day without having to think about it. Now, in addition, even when you exercise, you can limit the potential for exercise to be stressful or to be um, overly stimulating to your sympathetic, your fight or flight nervous system. If you even play around with things like nasal, deep diaphragmatic breathing when you exercise, I mean, just try yeah. this the next time you go to. The I just gym. did actually. I just yeah. did actually. I was reading a book last week, and I was like, "Yeah, let me try this." I, I pay attention to, it, but not too much. And then, yeah, it's a huge difference. Squats, deadlifts. You'd be surprised at the number of exercises you can do. Breathing through your nose and deep from the mm -hmm. belly. Now, granted, treadmill sprints, uh, Tabata sprints on a bicycle, um, you know, hard kettlebell intervals, you know, rope work, stuff like that. You do have to, you get to a point where your nose is a limiter and you have to breathe through your mouth. But unless you get to that certain point where you're just sucking air, it can actually be very, very helpful from a, a, a standpoint of decreasing cortisol to increasing oxygen, to increasing the activity of your relaxation, parasympathetic nervous system, to breathe uh, nasally using deep diaphragmatic breathing. The other thing that I use quite a bit is rhythmic breathing because I'm a chronic repetitive motion athlete, meaning I, I run and I bike. And so what rhythmic breathing involves is, for example, you would breathe one breath in for two foot strikes and then one breath out for the next foot strike and then one breath in for two foot strikes and one breath out for the next foot strike. So you might adjust your pace and go three breaths in and then two breaths out. There's a really good book about this called Running on Air by an mm -hmm. author named Bud Coates. And that's something I'll use a lot when I run to kind of achieve almost like, like this zen-like relaxation state when I run. And so I'll use breath work when I run. I'll use breath work when I lift. I wake up and do breath work. And then also if I am doing something like uh, sitting in the sauna, I'll use a, a different form of breathing. Like sometimes I'll do box breathing, right, which is a great way to, uh, to decrease stretch. And that's, that's four counts in, four count hold, four count out, four count hold. Another form of breathing that I'll do sometimes will be body warming type of breathing. That would be before I'll do like a cold soak or a cold water swim or a cold shower. And that's basically more of the type of breathing made popular by this guy named Wim Hof, where you yeah. would you would breathe in and then out not very much, then in and out not very much. And you do that like 30 times, like <laughs> And then you'd fully exhale all your oxygen to blow off a bunch of carbon dioxide. And when you blow off all that carbon dioxide, it has kind of like a warming effect 
on the body. And so that, that's another form of breath work. Another thing you can do is to, to increase your ability to be able to hold your breath or to be able to withstand low oxygen or, or periods of hypoxia where you, for example, do swim repeats without breathing or you download like one of these apps that's called an apnea app. A lot of free divers use this, an apnea app to your phone and it has you hold your breath for a certain period of time and then breathe and then hold your breath for a certain period of time and breathe and I'll even do these type of things that I'm watching a movie or you know when I'm just like sitting around and not doing anything and the only thing I can do is you know work on my breathing like on an airplane so um <laughs> yeah the, and then the, cool, the yeah. other the other thing you can do that's really cool for your inspiratory and expiratory muscles and also for breath work is resisted breathing so this would be like using a training mask or using uh, another one that, that they that they have is called a power lung. And these are things that you would breathe in and out of that increase your resistance to inspiration and expiration. And those can be really good for strengthening your diaphragm or for increasing the endurance in your inspiratory and your expiratory muscles. And, and those have a lot of implications uh, for, for athletes, for example, who want to be able to breathe more efficiently during exercise or during competition. So... Yeah, being cognizant that you know breathing goes way beyond just yeah. like moving air in and out of your mouth for sure. Yeah, it's a it's a huge topic. Thank you for all the tools here. So let's change a little bit towards uh, food. So I haven't talked to anybody yet on the show about soy. And when I moved to New York six years and a half ago, probably seven years ago, uh, I had a friend Diego from Switzerland, and he came to me and like, "Oh, Bruno, we should we should buy this uh, soy protein. You know, like uh, instead of whey protein, you should buy soy protein." I was like, "Okay, you know, I didn't know anything at all about nutrition. I haven't said anything, so I was like, cool, let me check it out.' So I bought it, and I started taking this. You know, and nowadays I have a completely different opinion about this whole subject, and I would love to get your opinion about the soy. Should we have, and how how you know if we have What's the preparation? Just a little summary on what you think about the soy subject, which is huge. Here in Brazil, it's a, it's a huge. The, the, the farm for soy, the production is crazy. Mm, so yeah. 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 Well, I mean, soy can be a good plant-based source of protein, you know, just, just as can legumes or seeds or nuts. And just like any plant, uh, soy needs to be uh, considered in, in terms of what it does to your body when you consume it. You know, for example, if you look at another plant, like quinoa, for example. Quinoa is a great protein-rich plant that the body can use as a good energy source, and it's got amino acids and minerals and fatty acids in it. But the problem is that it has a coating on it, a soap-like coating called saponins, which make it resistant to digestion or irritable to the digestive tract of a mammal. And that's a, that's a survival mechanism. It would mean that, that theoretically, you know, a mammal that consumed quinoa would poop it out somewhere mm -hmm. else, you know, relatively undigested so that, that quinoa plant could continue to grow, right? So there's defense and survival right. worked into many plants, you know, uh, potatoes and the, and the alkaloids on the skin of potatoes can act similarly. That's why some people have issues eating eggplants or potatoes or tomatoes. They might get joint pain. And so they may be people who do better if they peel the potato. So it's not like you, it's not like you quit eating quinoa, right? You soak the quinoa before you eat it mm -hmm. and you rinse it to get rid of the opponents or it's not like you quit eating potatoes maybe you just peel the potato so it has you know less less of an issue with your joints but when it comes to something like soy the same thing could be said for example soy has uh has, has some things in it that can inhibit mineral absorption in your gut 
has some phytic acids in it and some other digestive irritants in it that can be removed or downregulated via the process of fermenting the soy the same mm-hmm. way as you would ferment milk to make yogurt soy can be fermented to make uh, you know, like soybeans can be fermented to make natto, or soy can be fermented to make uh, a tempeh. Um, there, there are other forms of soy like miso or miso paste. You know, that's, that's another good form of fermented soy. And all of those still give you a lot of the proteins that soy has, a lot of those good plant-based proteins without a lot of the digestive inhibition. And so that's that's one thing that you want to look at is, is the soy fermented like miso or, or miso yeah. or natto or tempeh or is it unfermented as you would get in like the more popular forms of like soy milk or tofu. Yeah. The other thing to bear in mind with soy is, you know, if you are, for example, a man and you struggle with excess body fat, especially like areas that would indicate where your excess body fat is linked to high levels of estrogen, like man boobs, for example, or low levels of testosterone, or perhaps you even had your blood tested and you have high levels of estradiol or estrogens. Well, soy can have a little bit of a, a what's called a phytoestrogenic effect, meaning it can introduce estrogens into the human body. And so for a guy who's trying to lose weight or has a lot of body fat deposition, they may want to consider limiting the amount of, of both fermented and fermented soy, fermented and unfermented soy that they eat. Or for a woman who has estrogen dominance, which would mean like high levels of, of body fat or maybe a lot of, of hair growth and, you know, like the upper lip and other areas of the body and, and just appears to be kind of like in this pro-growth state. Well, certainly personal care products have estrogens in them. Household cleaning chemicals have estrogens in them. Plastic water bottles and styrofoam have estrogens in them, but so do some plants. And and soy is a perfect example of that. And so that would be another population, you know, like a woman who's trying to lose body fat. Uh, and if that body fat is linked to estrogen dominance or high levels of estrogen, that would be another person who'd want to really limit the amount of, of soy that they consume. So, you know, I, I personally would say that I have soy – um, you know, typically from like a miso or a natto or a tempeh source about once, maximum twice a week, you know, and that's about as much soy as I eat. But I mean, you could, yeah, I, I have moderation. A lot of my food, like meat, I don't eat meat every day. I eat meat once every two to three days just because, you know, granted meat is, is a great protein and it's tasty and it's, it's good for, you know, building muscle, for example. But there's a lot of evidence that shows that meat in very, very high amounts can have an, uh, 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 an anti-longevity effect. That it can increase mm-hmm. the rate at which your, your telomere shorten. It could potentially increase your risk for cancer if you overdo it. So I'm careful that I'm not just like constantly, you know, I have a lot of paleo friends who are like bacon and eggs for breakfast and fish for mm-hmm. lunch and steak for dinner. I don't do that. You know, I, I eat a lot of, of plants dark leafy greens, you know, tomatoes and carrots and cucumbers. And I have a lot of avocados and olive oil and avocado oil and seeds and nuts, you know, from cashews to almonds to macadamia nuts. And I throw in some dark berries here and there, like some blueberries and some raspberries and blackberries. And, you know, I throw in a little bit of coconut milk and some coconut flakes, a little bit of dark chocolate, a little bit of red wine and, but meat is not like a, uh, 
It's not a staple in my diet. If you look at my diet, mm. it's mostly plants with a lot of wow, like cool. oils and seeds and nuts, and then uh, you know a little bit of fruit thrown in here and there. But uh, you know, meat is not even a huge component of my diet. The same way that that soy is not a huge component mm-hmm. of my diet. I I didn't know that. So, are you having though sea seafood and chicken and pork though, like uh, every day? Let's say at least uh, some animal source. Oh food? no, maybe once every two to three days. Oh, cool. All right. Uh, so let's talk about this another topic in here that we are hearing a lot on the media, which is fasting, especially intermittent fasting, right? So who should it do and who should not do in terms of this uh, fasting subject? Because, you know, a lot of people are doing, but I see a lot of also a lot of problems related to maybe some adrenal fatigue and some, especially with the ladies, right? I, I find that the adrenal fatigue is blown out of proportion, frankly. Mm-hmm. In most cases, the folks who get adrenal fatigue from fasting, they're getting adrenal fatigue for really not because of the fasting, but for two other reasons. One, they're doing way too much exercise in combination with fasting, okay? So like the women who are taking yoga and Zumba and going on a bike ride and doing body pump, right? And then, oh, they heard fasting helps me to lose fat too, so they're doing that too. And then they're trying to raise their family and drive their cars and run their household, and it's just like... And it's not the fasting, it's everything else. Mm. And then, um, you know, the other mistake that people make is they assume that fasting means uh, that you significantly reduce calories. That's not what fasting means. Fasting in many cases simply means you have a restricted feeding window. And what that means is you're giving your gut a break and you're allowing your cells to clean up a little bit. But once you've fasted, you can still eat a lot of food, right? Like I personally eat... 3,500 calories a day or so, right? Like in that range. But I also fast every day. I fast every day for 12 to 16 hours, meaning that I'll quit eating at night and I'll go almost 365 days a year, half the day without eating. Granted, a lot of that is while I'm sleeping, but, you know, I won't snack after dinner and then I'll wait, you know, two, three, four hours until after I get up to eat breakfast. And by doing that, I give my gut a break. I give my cells a chance to clean up. I give inflammation a chance to subside. And then I'll still eat and I'll give my body plenty of really good nourishing nutrient-dense calories. But uh, I, I am not constantly snacking, right? Like I generally will eat three square meals a day, maximum four. You know, I'm not eating mm-hmm. five or six or ten small snacks a day or doing the grazing and the snacking because fasting and infrequent meal intake can help you with your fat burning and with your metabolic efficiency and with your avoidance of chronically like elevating the blood sugar levels over and over again. Now, in addition to that, it's also helpful to occasionally do a 24-hour fast. Some people will even get a lot of health benefit from a week-long water fast. And sure, you could overdo those type of things too, but they're also wonderful for longevity and for cellular cleanup. And for especially if you have gut issues, giving your gut a big break from constantly having to digest food. But again, use common sense, right? If you have a If you decide you're going to do a 24-hour fast from Saturday at lunchtime until Sunday at lunchtime, let's say. So you're going to skip Saturday night dinner and you're going to skip Sunday morning breakfast. For Pete's sake, don't don't schedule a 90-minute run on Sunday morning, right? Like that's yeah. that's where people make the mistake is they combine fasting with exercise. Fasting goes well with meditation. Fasting goes well with like some easy yoga. 
fasting goes well with relaxation. Fasting and exercise aren't a good combination. So that's that's the mistake mm-hmm. most people yeah. make. And I do a 24-hour fasting every time I travel from the USA to Brazil because it's a long trip. So I just have lunch and then just water. And also I don't eat that not-so-healthy food from the plane. And then I get here in Brazil, I live seven minutes walking to the beach. So the first thing I do, just, you know, get home and go straight to the beach and jump into the water and, you know, to also the circadian rhythm and all the, the earthing benefits. Cool. So thank you so much for talking about the fasting issue and going, and it's related to fasting, also the coffee, right? Because we can have this fatty coffee or like bulletproof coffee in the morning. Does that break the fast or is it still going when you have just fat in the morning? You know, it actually, I, I laugh sometimes when, when people say they can't figure out why they're not losing weight. They don't even eat breakfast, right? They just start the day with a cup of coffee and and they fast. And then I say, well, okay, what, what kind of coffee? And they're like, well, I'll do the bulletproof coffee with the MCT oil and the you mm-hmm. know butter and maybe a little like dark cacao powder. And you, know, you can easily consume 600 to 800 calories in a cup of coffee like that. Calories are calories to a certain extent. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that, yeah, you're absolutely breaking a fast when you have a cup of, of fatty coffee. And that counts as a full meal. And sometimes more when you have that cup of coffee, your body uses those fats for energy instead of using your own body fat for energy. So if you're trying to lose weight and you're dumping 600 to 800 calories of butter and coconut oil or MCT oil into your coffee, then you need to realize that that's breakfast, okay? So you can't do that and then have like bacon and eggs and have a smoothie. You can't do that and say, oh, whatever, I fasted because it does break the fast to do that. And, you know, I personally, there are certainly benefits to that whole coffee approach. For example, when you blend coffee with fats, there are components of coffee that would normally not cause psychoactivity, like uh, cafestol or kaweol or two components of coffee, you normally wouldn't feel at all unless they were to cross the blood-brain barrier in a lipid-soluble format, and they won't do that unless you blend your coffee with fats, right? So it can be kind of like a good cognitive performance hack. Or for something like, you know, prior to an Ironman triathlon, I used to do big cups of that fatty bulletproof coffee because I'd get not just that cognitive effect, but also the fact that a lot of those fats that you get from MCT oil or coconut oil, they bypass digestion and they go straight into ATP and energy production and ketone production. And so it could be a cool way to like get a lot of fuel into your body all at once. But uh, it's certainly not a uh, certainly not a low calorie approach, and so I do a cup of coffee, you know, or two every morning. But I, I it's very few and far between that I put fats in the coffee. Generally, for me, breakfast is more of like a a green plant based smoothie, just because you know I and I blend it really thick because I like to eat my meals slowly, and just you know drinking you know hundreds and hundreds of calories all at once is just not something that really appeals to me. And yeah, it is certainly something you need to be aware of is that, you know, it does have a lot of calories and it definitely does to answer your question, Ooh. break a, mm-hmm. break, break a fast. fast. So, yeah. Awesome. Uh, ben, I was, 
talking to my friend. His name is Giacomo here in Brazil. And Giacomo is an MMA fighter. And last week he posted a picture on Instagram and he was in a bathtub, like a, but was cold water. And all the comments here was like, oh my God, what are you doing to yourself? You're crazy. And he was like just having the whole explanation, the scientific explanation about cold thermogenesis and about the benefits. And also let's talk about this, cold thermogenesis and how can we use this to lose weight? Well, I mean, it's theoretically a very simple concept when it comes to fat loss. If your body has to keep itself warm, one of the primary ways that your body keeps itself warm is it burns calories to generate heat. And so if you're burning calories to generate heat and you're in, especially if you're in a fasted state or you're not overdoing the number of calories that you eat, a cold shower or a cold bath or a cold water soak or a cold swim can be a very good way to significantly accelerate your metabolic rate, even more so if you get yourself to the point where the water is cold enough or you're in the water long enough to where you begin, for example, uh, shivering. That can be a really, really good way to not just increase metabolism, but also increase the conversion of regular white adipose tissue into brown adipose tissue. Brown adipose tissue is a different type of fat tissue. It's very metabolically active and it burns calories to generate heat. So there are a huge number of benefits that go above and beyond just an increase in metabolism and an increase in calorie burning when you allow your body to be frequently exposed to cold temperatures. For example, you get an increase in nitric oxide, which causes vasodilation and increased oxygen delivery to tissues. You get a decrease in cytokines and inflammation, which can accelerate recovery uh, or strengthen the immune system. You get increased production of special shock proteins that increase your resilience to stress, whether that be relationship stress or emotional stress or exercise stress. Uh, the list goes on and on. You know, I have... I have many podcasts on my website devoted to yep. simply, you know, how to do it and, and when you would want to do it. But frankly, um, you know, it's something that I do every day. I take a cold shower at the beginning of mm -hmm. the day, at the end of the day, every day. And uh, I also do like some kind of a cold soak or a cold water swim at least a couple of times a week. And I'm a huge fan of, of not just cold but also heat, right, like saunas yeah. and uh, infrared and things that make you sweat and that open up the pores and that increase the production of heat shock proteins and nitric oxide in, in a different way and blood flow and metabolic efficiency and even the production of new red blood cells, which would, can really help athletes out. Uh, so again, that combination of of cold exposure multiple times during the week, and then also heat exposure, can be really beneficial uh, for for anybody yeah. from a metabolic standpoint. Yeah, I remember when I was reading your book, you said that you were swimming on a cold water, for, I think, for two weeks, and you were like, "Oh, I, I, I was sure I was just burning calories a lot because I was so cold every day there." And the same here in yeah. Brazil, right? Right now, the cold here is the the water here is a little cold, and I make sure I go in every day too. Yeah. Cool. So, Ben, my last question here for you is in terms of supplementation, do you have any favorites? I mean, uh, you mentioned a lot of ones for specific situations, specific goals. In terms of weight loss, what comes to your mind when you think about supplements? Well, for weight loss, the first thing that you need to understand is that 
most of the evidence in the studies that have been done on supplementation for weight loss only give someone an extra 5% or so of an increase in metabolic rate or an increase in fat burning, or say like a, a stabilization of blood sugar levels that would lead to a significant loss in body fat. Nothing replaces low-level physical activity throughout the day and ensuring that you're not eating too many calories when it comes to weight loss. I mean, those are, those are two of the biggies. And then, of course, like little things like stress and light and household cleaning chemicals and the type of air that you breathe and your personal care products, all of that comes into play as well. But let's say that you've got all of that sorted and you just want to lose fat even faster. Yeah, there are things that can help. Um, one thing you want to be aware of is that constantly elevated blood sugar levels can lead to a conversion of sugars into triglycerides and fats in the liver and a deposition of, of adipose tissue. And so there are things you can take prior to a meal to lower the blood sugar response to that meal, especially if that meal has a lot of protein or a lot of carbohydrates in it. Uh, bitter melon extract and cinnamon are two really good supplements for that, for any big meal or any meal that contains an appreciable amount of carbohydrates. Um, for fasted workouts, for mobilizing fatty acid, uh, the components in green tea and also the components in coffee can help out quite a bit for that. So that would be like a morning fat loss supplement to take prior to a, you know, like a fasted cold soak, for example. That would be a, a really good, uh, really good one-two combo for for something like that. When you consider that stress can have a significant impact on cortisol levels and also a significant impact on your ability to be able to lose weight. Certain things that help to mitigate stress, wild plant components called adaptogens, things like ashwagandha, eleuthero, uh, ginkgo biloba. There, there's a variety of different adaptogens out there, but a lot of these can help your body deal with stress and can also indirectly help with right. fat loss. So, right. um, you know, I, I would say that if you were just to choose two, if I could just choose two things to take, to enhance fat loss, and I could choose them. What I would take personally would be a concentrated green tea extract, and I would take that in a fasted state in the morning, and then a bitter melon extract, which actually acts very, very similar to the diabetic drug metformin for controlling blood sugar, and I would take that prior to my biggest carbohydrate-containing meal of the day, which is typically dinner. So those would be probably the two, the two best mm -hmm. ones to take from a supplementation standpoint. Cool. Awesome. Ben, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with us regarding weight loss or just health in general? Um, you know, I just updated my book. Uh, so if you go to beyondtrainingbook.com, I've got a big 450-plus page book full of you know, tips and hacks and strategies and workouts for everything from performance to digestion to fat loss to brain to sleep to sex to longevity. So I'd say, um, you know, definitely check that out if you want some more of this type of stuff. And uh, yeah, so that, that one's called Beyond Training and you should be able to find it on Amazon yeah. and stuff too. Yeah, I was going to ask you where can people find you and so what's next for you? What have you been working on today, uh, lately? Just... uh Basically, 
living life to the fullest, hanging out with my <laughs> kids, uh, taking care of the you know the goats and the chickens <laughs> and the house and yeah. So then, of course, awesome, just man. still still training, training for hunting, training for triathlon, training for spearfishing, training for obstacle racing, training for kickboxing, training for tennis. Just basically, uh, you know, trying to experience life to the fullest. <laughs> Cool. Man, thank you so much for being here with us today. I super appreciate the time, man. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Well, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Go to www.brazilianhealthnut.com for much more information about how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Hasta luego.